you will get your Bibles out and turn to Matthew chapter 27. That's where we'll be studying from this morning. Have you ever had something monumental happen in your life? Something that uh, really changed your whole perception, uh, changed the way that you viewed life, changed the way that uh, you believed and the way you acted. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the suffering of Jesus and him being mocked and, and men being cruel to him. And I brought up the example of me in middle school uh, picking on a little boy uh, who, who was different, who came from homeschool into the middle school environment and uh, didn't act like everybody else acted. And uh, I, I ended up picking on him too. Uh, and I, I talked about that, and one of the things that's interesting about that little story is um, that was a monumental moment for me. Uh, I hadn't really been mean to kids in the past, uh, and pretty much after that happened, I decided I was not going to be mean to kids anymore in the future. Uh, it, it had that much of an impact on my life, and I'm still here remembering it, uh, you know, 30 years later. So as we think about what's happened in our lives, I want you to consider different events that took place in your life that completely changed your course, changed who you are, that made a, enough of an impact to maybe push you forward to be something more than you were before. Maybe uh, it wasn't a complete turnaround. Maybe you didn't stop being the person you've always been. Maybe you did. Uh, but whatever it was, it opened your eyes to some truth about who you are, your personality, your temperament, that you ended up changing your course and, and feeling differently about what you see in life. As we study the life of Jesus, I find it fascinating, the, the correlation uh, that I feel with that little boy and what happened to me. Uh, because as we study this text, we see something very similar. Uh, those who are cruel to Jesus. Uh, notice, let's notice together what happens to them. Starting in verse 50 of uh, Matthew chapter 27, it says, uh, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. To remind you, Jesus has died. He suffered on that cross for six hours. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Pointing everybody to Psalm 22 and the fulfillment of Scripture, which he's been fulfilling all his life, and he dies. In verse 51 it says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. As we look at the story of Jesus and we come now to his death, we see him 
exhaling for the last time, falling down on the cross and not getting back up to breathe. And then all these events take place. First of all, while he's on the cross, there's darkness, an unusual darkness over the land. But then after that final breath, after he yields his life, it says the curtain of the temple tore in two from top to bottom, which is fascinating. Uh, how could a man do that? It's not, how could an earthquake, you know, what, what would cause that? Uh, there, there is a powerful earthquake. Earthquakes were kind of normal in that region. They are over a, a seismic area that would, would, would have some shifting, some earthquaking going on. But this is a powerful earthquake. Rocks were split as a result of this earthquake. And it also tells us that tombs were opened. It's interesting that Matthew includes that because what he says is men were raised from the dead after Jesus was raised. We're not, ta- we're not to the point yet where Jesus has been raised from the dead. But Matthew goes ahead and gives us this little bit of information to kind of join it in with the other amazing, uh, extraordinary, undeniable events that are taking place surrounding Jesus' death in order to provide, provide this proof to us that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what all these events are telling us. God sees and knows exactly what is happening to Jesus. And God is working in a way to show everybody He knows. To show everybody He understands exactly what they've done. The picture of an earthquake and darkness would give you the sense of judgment coming. It would give you a sense of terror like what these Romans felt as they had been watching Jesus and how Jesus had interacted, how Jesus had suffered, how Jesus had lived his life. And they felt that sense of terror sweeping over them. So much so that they were willing to admit this is the Son of God. That's a statement, isn't it, from the Romans? The Son of God was a name that was given to Caesar. If you were to look on a Roman coin, you would see uh, in, in their language, Son of God. That's the way uh, Caesars talked about themselves, as though they are the Son of God. Uh, and so for them to call Jesus the Son of God is, is just fascinating that they would do that, especially after they had just mocked him for being the king of the Jews in so many ways. Now they're recognizing, obviously, this is the Son of God. God is angry because we have murdered his Son. And they're, they're upset about that. They're filled with awe over that. The men... And women may be coming out of the tombs would signify that there is a resurrection that's happening. There's, there's a positive, positive aspect of this. Uh, the tearing of the curtain, as we talked about in Bible class, would be a positive aspect of this. It would signify that the way into the most holy place has been made available through the eternal sacrifice that God has offered in Jesus. It's just a beautiful picture for us of The judgment that's coming, earthquake and darkness, and the hope that God is trying to offer to mankind in this one sacrifice that he is the designer of. 
that he is the one who brought all of this about for a specific purpose, and that is the redemption of all of us, the salvation of all of us. Well, the Romans are very fascinating to look at. Uh, They definitely have this kind of monumental shift in thinking. (laughs) They went from thinking, oh, look at this fool. He's so weak. Look at him. He can't save himself. Everybody's mocking him. Everybody's making fun of him to what have we done? This is the son of God. and We've killed him. Well, we keep reading in verse 55. It says there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This text really is setting us up for something that we'll probably be studying next week. Uh, in, in looking at these women, it just introduces them. It helps us to understand they, they stayed with them. They stayed with Jesus in all of this. The disciples, for the most part, were nowhere to be found. But these women were looking from a distance and they were watching carefully everything that had happened because they were with Jesus the whole time. They knew who he was. They'd been ministering to them. And so there's not really a monumental shift that's happening with them. They're just staying steadfast and true throughout it all. And their their story will really come in chapter 28. But then we read in verse 57... When it was evening, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in, laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Again, it points to the women. They're coming. Their, their, their time to shine is, is coming in chapter 28. But here we read about a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Who is this guy? You know, This is not a guy we've read about anywhere else in the book of Matthew. And all of a sudden, he shows up and he asks Pilate, can I have the body of Jesus to bury it? They, they're, they're trying to bury it before uh, the, the next day. You're not supposed to leave a dead body out overnight. It would bring a curse upon the land. It would be bad for the whole land, according to Deuteronomy. But also, uh, we see that, that Joseph comes in being the perfect guy to solve the problem. He is a rich man who has a newly cut tomb that is a stone's throw away from Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. When we read in the other gospel accounts about Joseph, it tells us a lot of interesting information. In fact, every one of the gospel accounts talk about this man and what he does here. And the other gospel accounts let us know a lot more information than Matthew's account, probably because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and so they probably already know who Joseph of Arimathea is. But when we go diving into the other accounts, a picture is painted for us of Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph is a member of the Sanhedrin Council. 
He's a member of the religious organization of the Jews that agreed to put Jesus to death. And the other Gospels tell us he was not openly a disciple of Jesus because he was afraid of the Jews around him. So that's fascinating. As we learn about Joseph and why he's not been mentioned up until this point, it's because he's been a believer in the shadows. He's been keeping to himself for fear of what might happen if he were to come out and say that he truly believed that Jesus is the Son of God. But he did not agree with the murder of Jesus. And the murder of Jesus and the death of Jesus seems to have provoked him to do something amazing. Think about why. Joseph would come in at this point. Jesus is dead at this point. If he's the Messiah, why didn't he remove himself from the cross? You know, what's the point? Why, why, why go and, and, and get his body? You see, all the other disciples have left. They've given up on him. Why would he now think, I need to get his body and I need to put it in my tomb that's right here? It's just fascinating to me. You see him kind of like Esther coming to this realization. I'm here for such a time as this. And so he steps out in faith like Esther, like Nehemiah, who we're studying on Wednesday nights. He steps out in faith. He, he goes to Pilate's house. Now, Pilate's a Gentile. Jews don't go into Gentile quarters. They're, they meet him on the outside. It seems as though he actually goes in. It make him unclean, make him unable to participate in the festivities of Passover and, and the Unleavened Bread Week. And he asked Pilate for the body, knowing that this will now associate him with Jesus and most likely remove him from the Sanhedrin council. You see, Joseph completely gives it up at a point when to most people it seems like there's nothing to gain. There's nothing to get out of this. He's dead. Why would you do that, Joseph? Unless you believed in the words that he said. And on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. It's amazing to see Joseph believing that and stepping out in faith to bury Jesus and to give him a tomb that, it, that was probably built at the beginning for himself. For him to step away from the selfish pursuit of self-exaltation and, and reputation and, and glory and splendor that he had as part of the Sanhedrin Council and to just give it all up and to say, Jesus, you deserve this. And you deserve more than this. And I'm sorry, I can't give you more right now. It's an amazing story to learn about the Romans, to learn about Joseph and what they did, uh, to learn about all that God did right here surrounding uh, Jesus' death. And so as we think about what the message is, as we come to the end of what we're going to study this morning, we see Jesus is declared by God to be his son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. There's a picture throughout this. I love you. I care for you. I am with you. And I will judge those who have done this evil against you. But 
I really want to save them. Everything that happens on the cross is not because God lost control. It's not because Satan uh, defeated God in some way. It's because God knew we couldn't be saved without the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. And so, all of these events show judgment, but they also show that grace is being made available to everyone who will put on Christ and submit their will to His. It's a statement for all to see. The events that took place here are recorded historically as just odd events that took place on that day, around that time. Uh, Matthew's Gospel is the only one where we read about people rising from the dead, probably because nobody believed it. (laughs) But the darkness, the earthquake, the curtain of the temple tearing are all backed up historically so that we would know and believe that God was behind all of this. And as we read about the connected stories of the people, we're supposed to see that the death of Jesus changes people. The death of Jesus brings about a monumental shift in the minds and the hearts of the people who hear it. They go from living their lives selfishly, enjoying whatever it is that they can get, to giving up their self. To admitting that they're wrong. To calling Jesus the Son of God. The Romans and Joseph will never be the same after what they've witnessed. What about us? Have we experienced a monumental shift in our thinking, in our heart's desires? Has everything changed in us? Have we gone from a life of selfish pleasure and enjoyment of self and what I can get for myself to a life of recognizing that Jesus has died for me so that I can enjoy eternal life with God? Has the death of Jesus had that much of an impact on our minds and our hearts whenever we've seen it. It doesn't impact everybody that way. We're going to see that there are men who are completely blinded to it, completely hard-hearted toward it, and we'll see all of that next week, but has it impacted you? You know, the, the tearing of the curtain symbolizes for us that God wants a relationship with us. And that we can have that relationship with God. That there's no longer any barrier between us and God except the flesh of Jesus. And we can come into the body of Christ and have full access to a heavenly father. That's available for every single person here. It was available to the Roman who spit on him. Available to the Roman who scourged him. Who nailed his hands to the cross. It was available to to Joseph who was on the Sanhedrin council that was responsible for his death. It's available to all of us. Have we changed our hearts and our minds? Given them over to Jesus? Submitting to him 
putting on Christ, being grafted into the body of Christ. And if not, why not? It's available to everyone. Yeah, it requires major submission. It requires a major change, but it's worth it. And if you see what you've done and you see your sin like I do, that you're worthy of punishment and you've not received the punishment, this is your opportunity to avoid that punishment for all eternity. Maybe there are consequences that, that this world will give you, but God promises to forgive. So I want to encourage you this morning that if no monumental shifts have been made in your life, if you're still living for yourself and you're still doing all the things that you want to do and you don't have any care about God's will for you, think about the death of Jesus again. I appreciate Roger's statements throughout the Lord's Supper. It got our minds nice and fresh on what Jesus went, to, went through. That was for you. That was for you to understand. You're worthy of death. But he loves you and he wants to give you life. I love how Romans 8 put it as, as Roger said that. I was like, man, I love that text. In Romans 8, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's this picture of, God has this infinite supply of grace. And he says, if I was willing to give you my son, what will I hold back from you once you submit to me? I'll give you grace. I'll give you mercy. I'll give you love. I'll give you eternity with me. Will you give me your heart? That's the question. Will you give God your heart? Will you submit your will to his? Will you live for him because he died for you? If not, why not? And if you will, and there's anything that we can do to help you, will you please let us help you? Please come forward as we stand and as we sing.